The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. This morning to Revelation chapter 8, Revelation chapter 8, and uh, real life happens sometimes, and I took two medicines that probably are compounding each other, so uh, one was a drowsy medicine and one compounded the drowsy, so if I fall asleep up here, uh, now you know why, but uh, uh, we are here, uh, thank you Nelson for having uh, chicken in the freezer, that might be the saving grace by God's grace today as we come, so Revelation chapter 8 today. We are going to do the whole chapter today. I think we can do it. Uh, I appreciate last week my friend Brian preaching probably the top three longest sermon at Tower View Baptist Church, and that's okay. Uh, if you know uh, Presbyterians, they, they love to preach the Word as we do. It's a different style, but I pray you were blessed and encouraged by that, and uh, we're grateful for him and his presence as well. I do want to let you know uh, that it's kind of, we're in a weird season. We've tried to do every month someone else to speak while also balancing uh, our need to get down to Oklahoma to see Natalie's family. So next weekend, Lord willing, we will be down, our immediate family, to see her folks. And that's a good thing. They're getting up in age, and we just uh, uh, get chances to see them as we can, as you appreciate time with your family. So next week, Ben, uh, Brother Ben, will be preaching for us in Revelation. And I want to say this clearly, if the main pastor's not here, that doesn't mean you are not here. Come, come here. You will be blessed. The word of God is being preached, right? And then in November, I'm just letting you know what's coming up. In November, on the second Sunday, we will have a brother whose name I cannot mention to you for security reasons coming to preach for us. He serves in a foreign country for the International Mission Board. And uh, I, of course, will not be preaching then. From the rest of the year, I will be probably preaching. We'll get through roughly Revelation 10, maybe to 11, before we hit our Christmas themes and times, just so you know what's up and coming. As always, if you're on our email, our Facebook, we have a link every week that says all this stuff. You can look it up. We try to keep that up to date. Brother Ben, thank you for uh, filling in next week, and thank you for uh, preaching. Looking forward to having you as, uh, as time comes. So if you're able to stand this morning, would you stand with me in honor of God's word to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. And just to remind you where we have been, last uh, two or three weeks we've been looking through Revelation chapter 7. And, and now we are finishing up the seventh seal and starting the seven trumpets. We'll explain that in the sermon but Revelation 7 was kind of a timeout, a good timeout to see God's work around the world and before the throne, before things get crazy again. And so this morning, Revelation 8 is going to be tough, but I want you to know I've titled today's message, Prayer Matters, because I think the focal point here is less about what's happening on earth and more about what God is doing through his people as they pray here on earth. And you'll, I hope you'll see that with me today. Revelation chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 1 through the end of the chapter, of course. God's word says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke, verse 4, of the incense with the prayer of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquakes. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets, verse 6, prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown into the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, verse 8, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were also destroyed. So verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood, 
and a third of the waters became wormwood, and many died from water because it had been made bitter. Then, verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, likewise a third of the night. Then, verse 13, I, John, looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. A lot going on here. Revelation 8, are you going to be the top longest sermon at Tower View Baptist Church? No, we won't do that today. We will get through this, but I want you to know your prayers matter. They matter for things in heaven and judgments on earth, and I hope you leave today encouraged in the midst of this chapter, that wherever you are, however you are praying, prostrate before God, driving in your car, or simply sitting somewhere, God uses your prayers to bring about his fulfillment on this earth. Prayer works, not because we have the power, but because God is all-powerful. Let's go before the Lord as we pray. Thank you for being here today. Let's pray today. Father, thank you as we stand before your word. We thank you, Lord, that these terrible pictures of judgment that someday will fall upon the earth are a great reminder for us of anything. First, that you are God and we are not, and we bow the knee. But second, Lord, the, the, truly the only weapon we have on this earth, save the word of God, is to share through our hearts and our minds and our words with you our prayers for petition, things on this earth, things not of this earth, Lord, things we can see, things we don't see, but we are to pray in all things. So, Father, thank you for reminding us that even when things go out the window and things go haywire in this world, that you call us to keep our heads by focusing it on you and everything about us on you. Father, we love you. Give us wisdom now. We ask this today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, there's a story told about a little boy who knelt at his mom's bed and said his usual nighttime prayers. And he prayed, Lord, thank you for mommy and daddy and auntie and uncle. Thank you for grandma. Lord, give us a good day today. And oh, please give me a bicycle for Christmas, Lord, a bicycle. And the boy's voice got louder. And his mom heard him yelling out this prayer and wondered at his behavior. So she walked in the bedroom and said, son, son, you don't have to yell. God can hear you even if you whisper. And he said, as only a kid could, and said, Mom, I know God can hear me whether I yell or whether I whisper. But Grandma can't hear very well, and she's the one who's got the money for the bike I really, really want. <laughs> Few spiritual disciplines, perhaps, are more difficult to cultivate than the discipline of prayer. This, this kid certainly had something about it, didn't he? One reason his prayer is so hard is it's hard work, and we often fail to see its immediate benefits. We can pop in a chicken thing in service and 30 seconds in the microwave or more, but we don't see the answers of prayer that quickly. Seems like wasted effort. Seems like we're misguided or misinformed about how and when and why we should pray. Oswald Chambers, the great writer of a century gone by, said, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. If you doubt this, you need only to look at the book of Revelation, chapter 8, we just read. It was the prayers of the saints that brought about the judgment on the earth. And Luke 18.1, the great scripture that we know, reminds us that Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and never give up. They ought to always pray and never lose heart. They ought to always pray and keep going. Look, a crumpled check is good money even if it's crumpled if the signature is still on it. And so, too, a crumpled prayer, if Jesus' name is really on it, is still a prayer worth something in God's plan and economy. Our prayers are taken seriously by God, they're heard by God, they're used by God, and it is the means to the ends by which God says he will bring about, to some degree, the ends of the earth. Can I ask you a question this morning? If God answered all your prayers, would the world look different this morning? or just your own life and the people around it? Would your prayers this week, if Christ came to you and said, I'm going to answer every prayer, how many people would get saved if that were the case? God means to give us and only give us on the other side of earnest prayers, victories, breakthroughs, and blessings. 
And so many times, especially as we look around the world, we say, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And sometimes the people will say, I'm going to pray for you. And, and some secular person will say, well, that's just what's wrong with you Christians. All you do is just pray. Well, I would argue that sometimes we, even as Christians, don't just pray, do we? We remain silent. But I want to encourage you today that our prayers rise to heaven and unleash the power of God and judgment on the earth and so many more things. In my world, prayer is like bacon. No one turns it down and you can never have too much. Amen? And that's how that works. But the fact of the matter is, whether we're praying for institutions or countries or churches, everything pales in comparison to the power of prayer. Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The Lord tells us to keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. Because as the big idea says, this is how God's judgment is brought upon the earth. Say, Darren, my prayers really hold that much power? They do because they're in the hands of an all-powerful God. So this morning, I want you to see how prayer matters in bringing about that judgment but also how it matters in how you live your daily life this morning. And so just as way of reminder, Ben will be preaching a little bit on this next week, but I'm going to give the big picture view as well. We are just ending the seven, or excuse me, the seven seals. We've looked at this probably since mid-August. You remember those seals back in Revelation chapter 5 and 6. There was no one worthy to open the scroll. And then Jesus, the Lamb of God, stood up. And he broke those seals. And what were the seals? They were the, the, what was coming upon the earth. And he was the only one worthy to do it. And we're here at the very last, where there is a seventh seal, and there was just silence. Silence. If you were in Sunday school today, you know at the Mount of Transfiguration, there was silence with Peter. When Jesus transfigured himself, and Moses and Elijah came, and what do most people do when they're nervous? They chat. And he couldn't be quiet. But there was silence and we have looked at these seven seals, and we'll finish up the seventh today. But now we introduce also the seven trumpets. They are heard because the martyrs prayed back in Revelation chapter 6 for the Lord's will to be done, for judgment to come upon the earth. And now they are. And the first cycle is done. The first seven are done. And now we enter the next seven seals of the, or excuse me, the seven trumpets on earth. And God will bring these to bear. Two headings today. The first one is this, is I want you to see in verses 1 through 5, prayers in heaven, prayers in heaven. It's often said it's quietest before the storm. The stillness and silence can almost take your breath away. And so it is what is happening here in Revelation chapter 8. There is a half an hour of silence. And these judgments that we're going to look at are going to recall the judgments that God gave to Egypt and the story of Joshua in Jericho. And interestingly, they come about once again by the prayers and cries and petitions of God's people. They come about by God, but they come in response to the prayers of his people. And in light of these judgments, in light of everything we have seen, we are going to see God bring answers to those prayers. And it starts with Jesus' authority. The prayers in heaven, first off, start with Jesus' authority. And I want you to see there in verse 1, his authority is amazing to consider. His authority is amazing to consider. You note there in verse 1 of chapter 8 that when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, notice who's in charge of opening that seventh seal. Who is it? It's the Lamb, isn't it? It's Jesus himself. And as he comes to bear, it once again shows us that he alone has the rightful authority to bring about everything that happens in earth, seen and unseen. There's no counsel. There's no church, there's no SBC president, there's no pope, there is the Lamb of God. And as he wills, so the earth moves. But what do we do with the silence in heaven? What is the silence that is going on here? Well, silence in the Old Testament was a linkage to God's judgment. I'll read some verses, they're not on the screen for you, but here are some that will encourage you with this truth. The authority of Jesus is found in the silence in that Habakkuk 2.20 says, The Lord is in his temple. Let everyone be silent in his presence. Zephaniah 1.7 says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Zephaniah 2.13, Let all the people be silent before the Lord, for he's coming from his holy dwelling. We fear silence at times. God does not. 
This silence here represents a couple aspects. First, it is a respectful hush before the angels carry out God's will. It is a respectful hush of anticipation of the serious consequences that are coming upon the earth. But there's also a positive side to it. It's a quiet time before the sacred prayers of God's people are heard. Before God answers these prayers, it's like when someone comes late to dinner and you know that awkward thing, are they going to pray quietly or go pray in the other room because you pray before meals? You ever been there before? Your family's all prayed and then someone comes in late. Do you pray again as a group or do they pray as an individual? Typically in our families, they'll do it individually, but everybody else is going to be what? Quiet, even if they are praying silently as well. And so the silence seems to be that, that God is listening to the prayers of his people. It's a symbol that shows that God hears and cares for the prayers of his people. And friends, that ought to encourage you this morning because he has all authority. And as he breaks this last seal, it is not nothingness. It is preparation for what is to come. And so verse 1 shows us his amazing authority is something to consider. But notice verse 2. Jesus' authority starts with these prayers in heaven, not only with the amazingness that he breaks it, but also that it's delegated to angels. It's delegated or assigned to angels. Look at verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. God does indeed use angels to carry out his will. You may recall that that, that number seven there is the number of perfection, and here are seven angels and seven trumpets. God has selected seven specific angels to be his messengers to do his work. Other places in Scripture where God has used angels before, in the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai and Exodus, there were angels. When Jericho fell, there was an angel in Joshua chapter 6. When kings were announced in the Old Testament, angels were there, 1 Kings 1 and 1 Kings 2. At the sound of the second coming, do you know what, who will be there announcing that? Angels, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 18. And when Christ returns, Matthew 24 says, it'll be at the trump of the sound of the angels that it comes. And so these angels are here, but it is Christ giving that authority to them. Why do I keep harping on that? Because your prayers mean nothing unless you have an authority in heaven who is delegating out how those prayers are going to be answered. And what he shows here is that Christ, with all authority in heaven and on earth, summons his angels to carry out his will on this earth. May I remind you, Hebrews 1.14 tells us that angels are like ministering spirits sent to those who inherit salvation. Do you have a guardian angel? Have no idea. But I do know that God is powerful enough to call forth his angels to carry out his work for all those he's appointed to the task. I mean, if God can wake up Peter from a deep sleep in jail and bust him out of jail, how much more can he do something in your life? Don't fixate on the angels, but know that God uses them, especially in these ways. Who are the seven angels? We really don't know, but we do know they bring seven trumpets. Seven angels selected out of millions and billions of angels were selected to the task. But the prayers in heaven start with Jesus' authority. I want you to see also here another subpoint is that the prayers in heaven showcase the beauty of prayer. They showcase the beauty of prayer. Will you look at verses 3 to 5 with me? Verse 3 says, And another angel came. So you have the seven angels, and then verse 3, you have another angel, that's, of course, eight, came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And verse 4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel, that eighth angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and earthquakes. I just want to take a minute. This was refreshing for my soul this week. I pray it is for you as we go through this about the power of prayer. Yes, but the beauty of prayer. Often when we think of prayer, we think of doing this and bowing our heads and closing our eyes. May I remind you, church, that the Bible does not really give much about the physicality of prayer. It doesn't say that you have to be on your knees. That's why we don't have knee things like some churches do where you get on your knees in prayer. Nothing wrong with that. It doesn't say that you have to be uh, uh, with your hands held high, though there are times in the Bible 
where people prayed with their hands held high. It doesn't say you have to close your eyes, bow your heads, and clasp your hands together. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible is more concerned about what's happening in the inside, isn't it, when you pray? I can pray when I run a marathon, and there are some prayers that happen in that those times. Lord, help me get through another one, and I'll go do this for you or something like that. God, get me out of this, and I'll... But really, God is concerned about what's happening on the inside of prayer. And you see several marks here of prayer that showcase the beauty of it. First, I want you to see the, the, the point of prayer, the point of prayer. Now, this, this, this point of prayer is very simple. I mean, why bother? I mean, if God is sovereign, why pray? If God is sovereign, why pray? And the point of prayer will be the next little sub-point there, especially when we have been exploring the opening of the seals. I mean, if God's sovereign, why pray? He's just going to carry it out anyway. Why do you pray? Because prayer matters. Your prayers are heard. Revelation 8 gives us that pretty clear answer. He's ordained a means to the end. Look, prayer doesn't change God's mind or his will, but it's an essential part of how it's carried out. I want you to picture yourself on a boat, and you have a rope, and you throw that rope to shore, and you start, and someone ties it off, and you start pulling yourself to shore. As you pull yourself to shore, you think you're pulling the shore to you. But really, in effect, what is happening? You're pulling yourself to the what? To the shore. And so it is with prayer. When we pray, we may feel like we're trying to bring God into our plans, but really God, in essence, is bringing us in line with his will and his plans. Ask anything in my name, Jesus said, and it'll be given to you. And so the point of prayer is not about changing God, but about changing ourselves to be in line with God. And you see that all through here. These people who prayed in Revelation 8 weren't praying for their will to be done. They were praying for God's will to be done. And so it should be with our prayers. Look, prayer is not just a select few who get changed. When you pray, God changes you. You want to grow in your relationship with God, then pray. You want to grow in your knowledge of God, then pray. God unfolds his divine plan, and they are intertwined in this plan with the prayers of the saints. The point of prayer is simply that you would know God, and through that, you would see his handiwork at work. Yes, your prayer matters. And yes, it doesn't matter if it's a childish prayer or if it's a big prayer. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So the beauty of prayer, first the point of prayer, and notice here in verse 3, the people who pray, the people who pray, who are they? They're saints. Wait, St. Thomas, St. Augustine, St. Fill-in-the-blank that did three miracles and got voted on by a council. Those are the saints, right? People wear medallions with them. No, a saint just means a holy one. If you're a Christian, you are a saint, and you didn't even have to do three miracles. Amen. You're a saint because there was one miracle done for you. And that one miracle is that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And it is finished. It's a miracle that you're a saint. You're not a saint because you're holier than somebody else. Forgive our friends of another church. This text means that they prayed before the throne and they were the saints. Every believer is a saint. And in Revelation 8, it underscores that God specifically hears the prayers of the saints. Well, pastor, does God hear the prayers of people who are not Christian? Perhaps in his time and his way, he answers those, but we don't have a clear answer. What we do have a clear answer are is that if you are a Christian, you will be a prayerful person. A prayerless Christian, Spurgeon said, is a Christless Christian. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian, but you have no desire to seek God in prayer, then you need to question whether you can claim the title of Christian at all. So those are the people who pray in verse 3. But notice also in verse 3 where they're praying, the place of prayer, the place of prayer. Where are they praying? They're praying at the altar with a golden censer. These are the prayers of the saints. I want you to know that these are not prayers of special group of people. These are small Christians in stature and big Christians in stature physically. But all together, they serve a holy, big God. It does not matter how you are physically. It matters how you get along spiritually. And every prayer here is presented to the altar. Did you notice that? He has given us much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. Notice that key phrase, all, at the end of verse 3. Did you notice that? Your Bible should say, all the saints. It does not just say the pastor prayer. Because, you know, we have a red phone in our offices. Did you know that? That only pastors can pray to God for you. 
Did you miss that app or that update on your phone? You must have. We don't have any more special access than you do. Christian, I want to remind you, especially in the month of October where we celebrate the Reformation uh, uh, of the five solas that, he, that, that, that we broke away from our Catholic friends many years ago, that you have the same access to God as the quote-unquote holy people do in the church. Don't let it loose. Don't lose it, excuse me. In Revelation 8, the re, it reminds us there's no red phone to God, but this prayer comes from God's people, and the only way it's recognized is through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's why we often pray for Christ's sake, for his name's sake, in Jesus' name, because prayer genuinely only rests on the altar. Some people say, I've prayed, but God never really answers my prayer. It might be because the prayers aren't praised rightly. Have you prayed that Christ would bless your prayer? Can Christ bless your prayers? Perhaps that's the problem. Outside of Jesus, we're all sinners with no right to be heard, but Jesus takes prayers laid on the bloody altar and responds to them from there because he gave his life once and for all for that. If you're here today, young person, old person, young kid, old kid, whatever you are, you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you need to come through him. The only way God will hear you specifically is you, if you go through him exactly. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through him. But notice verses 4 and 5, in verse 3 and verse 4, the presentation of the prayers, the presentation of the prayers. The verses talk about the smoke of the incense, it says in verse 4, with the prayers of the saints. And what do they do? They rise before God from the hand of the angel. That word incense symbolizes the merit of Christ's suffering. As our high priest, he takes our prayers and he brings them before God the Father. And he says, Lord, or our Father, excuse me, here are the prayers of your people. The incense that he has here, in a sense, takes our selfish, earthly, and sinful prayers and makes them into a holy offering. Aren't you grateful for that? When you pray amiss, Christ takes it seemingly here through the hand of an angel and makes it holy. When you don't have the right words to say, Romans says, the Spirit gives you words to say. And those words to say are given and mediated through Jesus Christ. And what remains is a pleasing aroma to God. I mean, think about this. If God had a prayer desk up here and the angels were attending to it, everything that you bring to him would not be a waiting or a cold answering service. Artificial intelligence, AI, seems to be all the rage today, doesn't it? AI for this, AI for that, AI here, AI there. Some people think we're going to be taken over by robots. That's not biblical, but there it is. God does not run an AI service for prayers. He gets involved personally. It signifies to us in verses 3 and 4 that Jesus takes our imperfect prayers, he sprinkles them with his suffering, and he presents them to the Father. He turns our small, imperfect, and unrighteous prayers into big, perfect, and righteous prayers. You say, how do you know that? Well, look what it says. They rose before God from the hand of the angel. They came up to Christ from the angel, and the Christ took them to the Father. Do you see how when you pray for someone that doesn't know Jesus Christ, your prayer really is effective? Well, Darren, I've been praying for him for a really long time. You know what? Keep praying for him. God has more power to work than you believe and I believe at times. Even when we feel our prayers are poor, God sees them as beautiful in Christ. I pray that brings you comfort today. And finally, I want you to see the potential of our prayers. Look at verse 5. The potential of our prayers. What does this mean? Well, he takes it. The point is that we get to know him and our prayers are powerful. The, the people or the saints, they're us. The place is before the altar. The, the presentation is that the angel going through Christ brings them up and then there's finally the result, the potential of prayer. Verse five tells you what that result is. Then the angel took the censer and a censer is kind of like a, 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 I, I should have put a picture up here, but it's like, uh, it's like when you're melting something in the old days, you'd have something right here uh, and it'd be closed on both sides, and you can throw it out. Uh, you put hot things on both sides, it melds it together, almost like they'd make um, uh, uh, daggers and things back in those days, and you throw it out. So he collects all the prayers, and you notice there are four results. There's peals of thunder, there's rumblings, there's flashes of lightnings, and there's earthquakes. 
Christian, you're small and I'm small, but our God is big. And our prayers are small, but our God takes those small prayers and turns it into something awesome. Get ready how he responds. Look, why, but why should they wait on us? Why should these angels wait on us? Do you know angels are actually probably bigger, faster, stronger, and more intelligent than we are? But here's the difference. You are kings and priests unto God, heirs of his heavenly kingdom. You are co-heirs with Christ. Your prayers are beautiful, and our prayers, though feeble and imperfect, gain attention when presented through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Look, it is not, can I just be absolutely clear here? It is not through getting the right person on the Supreme Court. It's not through getting the right person in office. It's not getting through the right circumstance that your life is going to change. Your life changes when you're on your knees or however you're praying before God and saying to him, only you can take this. Only you can do this. And things start to happen. You want to see revival in your family? When's the last time you prayed for a revival in your family? You want to see every chair in here filled? When's the last time you prayed for every chair in here to be filled? You want to know God? When's the last time? God, I want to know you more. When have you prayed that way? I love praying for health. I love praying for trips. But when is the last time you prayed for God to change you and those around you by the power of his name? If your prayers can cause thunder and lightning and earthquakes and all these things, you need to know that prayers for spiritual things can cause a lot of good. In the Great Commission, I shared this with our Sunday school class. In the Great Commission, when they worshiped Jesus on that mountain, it said they worshiped him, but some doubted. Why did they doubt when Jesus was resurrected right in front of them? They didn't doubt his power, I think. They doubted the fact that they could go on and do it themselves. Friends, sometimes to carry out God's mission, you need to be reminded that it is only through the power of prayer that things come out and things change. Look, I want to see our country change. I want to see our world changed. I want to see all those things. Have you prayed about it? Seriously, have you literally prayed about it? That might be it. The early Christians turned the world upside down. How did they do it? Through prayer. The reformers turned the world upside down. How did they do it? Through prayer. You want to turn your family upside down for the glory of God? I'm going to ask you, how much have you prayed about it? How much have you given to God about it? And how much have you trusted him through it? These prayers that they prayed in Revelation 8 are beautiful. And Christian, if you have failed in that recently, whatever that means for you, can I just encourage you to keep on praying and don't lose heart? Be like that widow in Luke 18 that, that went before the, the wicked judge and kept petitioning the wicked judge for whatever cause she had that she knew was unjust. And finally, the wicked judge said, I'm sick of hearing from this widow. Give her what she wants. And so too, God likened prayers. You bother God, if that's the right word, until you get an answer to your prayer. Yes, no, maybe, wait, or let's try this a different way, God may say. But you keep praying. You keep praying. Your prayers matter in heaven. And they matter so much that there are now, secondly, judgments on earth. Will you look at verses 6 through 13 with me? There are now judgments on earth. And I want you to see that God is sovereign in judgment over the first thing here that is the first trumpet. Verse 7, and he's sovereign over judgment on the earth, on the earth. It says in verse 7, The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And there was thrown upon, a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. This resembles, if you will, the seventh uh, plague of Exodus chapter 9 and echoes Joel's prophecy in, in, in Joel 2 and Acts 2. What we see here is that refre- repeated phrase, burned up. I count it three times in the ESV I'm preaching out of. You may have more. But it symbolizes that it, it, it's urging people to repent. And if you'll go to chapter 9, verse 20, I want you to know these people don't change their minds. Go to chapter 9, verse 20, and it tells you the result of what happens. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons, and so on and so forth. This first trumpet is to, is to align the predictions of divine judgment bringing about what Jesus said in Luke 21. 
but though they are specific in their nature, their gravity is all inspiring. A third of all the earth in different forms is taken up. Now, before we get there, Darren, are these literal or metaphorical? And the answer is yes, it's both. Thank you, Nelson. Nelson is smiling ear to ear back there, if you could see him right now. So the first trumpet, a third is lost on the earth. But I want you to notice the second trumpet. Look at verses 8 and 9. The second trumpet, God is sovereign over judgments on the seas, the seas, S-E-A-S. And it says, the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures died, and a third of the ships died. Look, prayer releases the grip of Satan's power on this earth. Prayerlessness increases it. That's why it's so exhausting at times to pray, because it's hard work. But Romans 8.22 reminds us that all creation has been groaning since Adam and Eve were defeated by Satan in the Garden of Eden. And John says something like a great mountain was hurled to the earth. Is this a volcano? Is this, a, is, this an, is this an underground thing? We really have no idea, to be completely honest with you. Have no idea. I think the point of it is, the point of all these things is, is that it reminds us that these judgments are partial, not total. Back in the Roman days, they would have used the sea to trade and get their livelihood. And, and, and what God is saying, once again, just as he did to Egypt, everything you hold dear in this life, I'm going to attack. It reminded me of the days during COVID when the world shut down seemingly in March 2020. It was like God pulled the rug out on everything we trust. The very first thing I remember being canceled was the March Madness NCAA basketball tournament of all things. God pulled out the idol of sports underneath us. And then the idol of education, the idol of economy, and the idol of this and the idol of that. So too, this first century audience would get that in verses 8 and 9, the blood becoming something, reminding them of Exodus chapter 7, where the first plague that was turned over in Exodus 7 was the blood that killed the fish and made the water undrinkable in the Nile River. God is showing that he's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the earth, the seas. And next, verses 10 to 11, he's sovereign over the river and the springs. The river and the springs. A third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and fell a third of the earth and its springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it hadn't been made bitter. Look, I, you notice that third, one-third, or a third of the earth, a third of this, the water becomes bitter. That again harkens back to Exodus chapter 7, where the water became bitter. If you remember your Hebrew and you remember in, in, in the uh, Exodus, they complained because there was bitter water or mara, Exodus chapter 15. Here the term woodwood, wormwood symbolizes poison and death. And it's mentioned eight times in the Old Testament alone. Whether this star is natural or supernatural, I don't know. But what I do know is the result is clear. God is making things of the world people trust in bitter for his glory. It's almost like when you pull out something, when your kid gets in trouble and you take away their favorite device, and then they keep getting in trouble, and you take away their favorite stereo or their favorite whatever, eventually the bottom is going to fall out. And God is removing every comfort from everything. And finally, you see, not only is he sovereign over the earth, the seas, the rivers, and all those things, but he's also sovereign, verse 12, over the heavens. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and notice this, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining. And so, likewise, a third of the night. God is telling people, even your predictable patterns, that the sun will rise and the moon will set, or however that works, I'm taking away. I'm giving it away. And Amos 5.18 teaches us that the Lord, the day of the Lord is darkness, not light. And Joel 2 says the day of the Lord will be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It takes you back to Exodus 10, where we see 
that the, the, there was great darkness that fell over the, the land of Egypt in those days, and only the Israelites were able to have light. So what do you do with these? Are these real, Darren? Church, I want to tell you they are probably real. They are going to happen, but they're also metaphorical. And let's break this down. How do we interpret these? The, remember, the prayers of the saints are bringing these out. God is using a, a, a means to an end. But I want to give you just a few things that are on your notes there about how we should interpret these as we look to close this out. First, these are types of punishment, or these are, these are, these are punishments of some type. And you'll see this up on the screen. These are punishments of different types. And these punishments are coming, really. This is actually going to happen. This is actually going to happen. These are unequivocal. All of these things will come. Punishments equal God's wrath. I would submit to you that the reason most people do not like the book of Revelation or don't understand it is not because it's hard to understand. Most people don't like the book of Revelation because of that second phrase right there, God's wrath. We can squibble over details and debate over those things, but I think at the end of it, most people just don't simply like that God is going to be angry with the world. But if you're a Christian, this is what you've prayed for. This is what you've longed for. This is what you desire. God said it right. They killed you, the Lord of glory. Lord, said it right. And it's okay to struggle with some of this. There will be millions and billions of people who will die a physical death by these trumpets. But I want you to know every single one of them will have understood that there is a God in heaven. And as Revelation 9 said, they're unwilling to give up their idolatries. Also, I want you to see that these are partial judgments with increasing intensity. These are partial judgments with increasing intensity or judgments. You notice that with the phrase, a third. The seals were affected by a quarter. The trumpets, a third. And finally, when we get through Revelation, the seven bowls will be complete destruction. The, the seals are a, a quarter, trumpets are a third, and the bowls are complete destruction. God is escalating slowly but surely, adding on. Again, giving people a chance to repent. People say, well, if God loved everyone, why doesn't he save everyone? Because he gives you a choice. And most people don't want that choice, even if they could accept that choice. And the last thing I want you to do, how do we interpret this? Is these are literal but metaphorical. These are literal but metaphorical. These are not all literal events right away, but they are pictures of what's representing. Someday, somehow, God will pull this out, and these strange symbols are meant not to be tied to a specific historical event or black helicopters in the sky, but are God's ways of announcing judgment. And I, I want to submit to you again that don't let the culture define your Christianity, Christian. God so loved the world, and if you know it, you can say it with me, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal and everlasting life. God is still love, but God promised this day would come. And you need to know that in, in the spirit of Psalm 18 and Ezekiel 5, mountains here may represent kingdoms, wormwood may represent idolatry. There's all sorts of symbols that link back to the Old Testament but the point of the matter is, is that God is going to bring it to bear. Not necessarily chronologically, but this has been happening for time and time again. And you notice at the end of verse 13, did you notice what that eagle said? What are the three things he said? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Didn't that make you in your mind go back to Isaiah chapter 6, you Bible scholars that know what the angel said about uh, God? He is holy, holy, holy. If you believe God is holy thrice over, then you can say with that eagle who flew overhead, woe, woe, woe. So where does this leave us today? What do we learn from these things? When trumpets blow, three things happen. First, there is the unraveling of our securities. There is the unraveling of our securities. The first trumpet signals a dramatic unraveling. Hail, fire, blood-soaked earth, a third of a familiar things filled up. Then a mountain plunges into the sea, wiping out a third of the ships. 
a star named Wormwood poisons waters and claims lives. And then the fourth trumpet sounds and darkness descends on the sun, the moon, the stars. So what's the big picture? That God shakes things up to get things done. That when God means business, he's in control of all these things. You remember Jonah, that story, Jonah? We love that. Kids love that story because he gets swallowed by a big, uh, a big mammal of some kind, whether it's a fish or whatever. You figure that out. But he got swallowed up. Jonah tried to run away. Jonah tried to throw himself in the sea. Jonah tried to cry out for all these things, but God was in control of the sea, the waves, the, even the sailors to a degree. And he gets in Jonah 2, and we read this last week in, 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 the, in the scripture reading. He gets to Jonah 2, and he basically says, salvation is from the Lord. I can't do anything because God's in control of it all. Salvation is of the Lord. And I want to tell you that sometimes in your life, God is going to unravel you so that you can find him once again. When you look around and you see this happening in the midst of the chaos, God is calling you to do what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells you to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all ways, and he will make your paths straight. Notice it doesn't say straight without any potholes like Kansas City seems to get. It just says straight. And so, guys, this should unravel your securities if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian then you hold on to every word of God here because even though it is tough, he is worthy to be worshiped in these judgments. And that's what it should do. That's why I don't want you to freak out about every time you turn on CNN or Fox News about what's happening in Israel. Is it the end of days? Guys, we've been at the end of time since Jesus ascended back to heaven. The end times are until Jesus comes back. Is Israel a chosen nation to a degree? And different Christians will disagree on those things. But I want you to know, put away your prophecy calendar and get out your prayer calendar and start praying. Stop worrying about the timing of events. Pray for the people. Pray for all these things we've talked about. Because God is unraveling securities of people to bring them back to him. Secondly, judgment is coming. Secondly, judgment is coming. It's near. Pastor, you've mentioned that like every week. Yeah, it's the book of Revelation, right? Come on. It's near. Just because you don't see it, just because you don't hear it, a trumpet in those days was an alarm, much like many of us in the Midwest. If you're not from the Midwest and you come here during springtime and summertime and you hear those sirens, uh, that's going to shock your system, isn't it? I've shared before. I remember uh, Scarlett, my daughter, was asking about this. I forget about this little detail. We were at... uh, in. May 4th, 2003, at almost 5 o'clock, we were throwing a Frisbee around that I bought at MC Sports in Metro North Mall uh, on the quad of William Jewell College. We saw all the clouds, no big deal. We looked at the radar, all those things. Nothing's going to happen to us. And then the sirens. And we got in there, and within five minutes, the, the windows went. We were just playing Frisbee, no big deal. So too, many people will feel that way about God's judgments. And Christian, that ought to encourage you to pray all the more. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that your day is not promised tomorrow. You need to come to Christ. And God speaks often loudest in our pains. And I need you to know today that God is going to fulfill everything he says here. The days and times and hours don't matter. The fact is he's coming. Are you ready? And finally, I want you to notice the patience of our God. The patience of our God is amazing. The patience of our God. God had patience with you. He had patience with me. 2 Peter 3 says, God's patience is for our salvation. God, not desiring any to perish, but desiring all to come to repentance, is longing and waiting. And he's waiting and waiting and waiting. And friends, that ought to be a blessing to us that God is not just a a cosmic fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants God, that everything he does is calculated in his sovereign, sealed time plan, his secret will. But to do that is for his glory. Look, Revelation can be exhausting, can't it? I'm exhausted with it too. But something that I've taken great hope in is that Christ is being exalted. In heaven someday, you're not going to worry about the details of Revelation. 
you're going to just thank God that you're there with him, worshiping the lamb forever. Would you pray with me this morning? We'll go before our Lord. Father, thank you that we are greatly reminded this morning that the prayers that we offer to you in heaven are not in vain, that there is a supernatural world that we see by faith, but you see fully, visibly, working sovereignly behind the scenes you are, Lord, to carry out your will and your work and your way. So, Father, I pray for the Christian here today who is tired of praying for fill-in-the-blank request. I pray that they would be given strength and endurance to continue on the course. I pray for our church as we see very little fruit at times, it seems, from the outreach of personal relationships and corporate evangelism and even discipleship, that you would remind us that you are still working in ways we cannot see. Father, I pray for the parent or grandparent who's prayed for a wayward uh, grown child or grandchild or uh, a young child that's yet to come to Christ, that you would strengthen those prayers for your glory. Pray for Christians everywhere praying for your, your, your will and your coming. As John said, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come at the end of Revelation. So many are praying, especially in light of what we've seen in the Middle East these last few weeks. Father, would you encourage us with patience and steadfastness always abounding in the work of the Lord. Father, I pray also for those non-Christians here who, who may be praying for some divine sign or some, some special wording from heaven. Father, I pray that you would impress upon their hearts that you have given them all the evidence they need, and that is that Jesus died and rose again, and he's coming again, and that there's nothing in them that can take them to heaven but only your Son. Father, I pray for all of us as we consider this world that we'd be less about guessing your coming and more about the anticipation that our prayers are being answered as we seek those days ahead. Father, may we be a prayerful people, may we be a thankful people, and in the midst of all that, a humble people. Thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We ask these things today in his name and for Christ's sake. Amen.